Beneath the hills of eastern Pennsylvania, an hour north of Harrisburg, a fire has been burning for 60 years. It began in 1962 in a landfill near the community of Centralia. And they, every year, just before Memorial Day, they had this practice of setting the dump on fire. That's Dave DeCoke, a former newspaper journalist who has written a few books about the fire. Because it was right by a cemetery, and a lot of people would be coming out to visit the graves of their ancestors, you know, to put up the little American flags on the veterans' graves and, you know, and that sort of thing. And they wanted the dump to be as nice as a dump could be, you know, and, and the way they would clean it up was by setting it on fire, letting it burn for a while, and then they would uh, wash it down with water from a tanker truck and from the fire company and, and then go away and everything was fine. But they had recently moved the landfill to a new location. The problem was uh, strip mines in that area often cut through old deep mines, and, and this one was no exception. And the state dump inspector had told them they had to you know, close up those openings, but they hadn't done all of them. And, and there was one down in the bottom of the pit underneath the garbage that they had not gotten around to. And it was through that opening that uh, the fire spread. It got into a network of abandoned coal mines that stretched beneath the town. They sent a second fire truck out there, but it was really too late. Centralia had only begun to burn. From Belt Magazine, this is Fire, a podcast about industrial fires in American life. I'm Ryan Schnur. If you go to Centralia these days, it doesn't look much like a town. Almost nobody lives there anymore, and most of the buildings have been leveled. There's a bit of infrastructure left, roads, telephone poles, stuff like that. You can still drive through it. But most people will tell you not to stray too far off-road. Grass and trees have taken over, ventilation pipes spill upward from the earth, and they say that sometimes, near the Odd Fellows Cemetery on the outskirts of town, you can still see smoke rising up from underground. There are competing theories about how the fire actually started, but the one Dave DeCoke just explained seems to hold up best. And even if you think that's up for debate, it's clear the Centralia mine fire is a product of the coal industry. And now it haunts the seams below the former town, where asphalt streets are lined with the ghosts of homes demolished long ago. The fire has been burning for more than 60 years, and by some estimates, it's got another 250 or more to go. And so the question you might have, or at least the question I have in this era of climate crisis, is what happens in a place that's perpetually on fire? Uh, during the summer of 1962, state and federal mining officials debated which of them, which agency would take charge of this mine fire. It used to be that mining companies were responsible for cleaning up mine fires. But, DeCoke says, they were struggling in the 60s, and so responsibility for the Centralia fire fell on the government, which had not allocated nearly enough resources. But eventually the state agreed to take over. You know, they gave the contract to a local company, and, and you know, he started you know, working on this. And then Labor Day weekend comes along, and work stops for the holiday. Uh, the fire didn't stop burning, but they stopped digging. When they came back after the long weekend, the fire had burned beyond the area where they had enough money to dig it out of the ground. And so they had to stop work and, and then appeal for funds from the state for 
a new project. And the same thing happened. And this would be the story of the Centralia Mine Fire all along. They they would appropriate some money to deal with it, but not enough. And this just kept happening again and again and again. A year later, somebody came up with an idea to draw the fire away from Centralia by opening a vent in the direction of some abandoned mine land. The government created a barrier of fly ash, which is a kind of coal residue. And, DeCoke says, that actually worked for a while, until it didn't. Overall, the Centralia mine fire became a battle of, of, of man against the environment. You know, man had created the conditions for this fire to spread, uh, a fire that the town set itself accidentally became the mine fire, and then dealing with this horrendous underground monster that, that they had created. We lived in the very first house as you come into Centralia from Mount Carmel. Judy Politis moved to Centralia in the 1960s. Well, when we moved to Centralia, it was 1968. And the the beginnings of that concern about the fire were just erupting, like it wasn't enough to keep you from buying there. The family bought a big old house from the early 20th century and began to remodel it room by room. They had five kids who attended the local schools. Well, like many small towns, it was basically a mining community. Miners were recruited from European countries to come here and work. The neighborhoods were settled in those ways. There were just a few stores, a little a little mom-and-pop store, the bank, uh, a store that probably served the miners at one time that had jeans and boots and things like that, but um, not like a, a true department store. And the, the usual things that are in communities, the American Legion, which was popular, the fire company, you know, just, just a little tiny small town. A few years after Judy Politis and her family moved to Centralia, the fly ash barrier began to fail. Fire and gases snuck through into the tunnels underneath Centralia proper. I started working for the Shimokan News Item in uh, the fall of 1975. And, and I really, I heard nothing about the Centralia mine fire during like the first 18 months that I was there. It was simply not talked about. It was in that period where people thought the mine, you know, the, the fly ash barrier was working. Dave DeCoke recalls the moment he realized Centralia was going to be a big story. It wasn't until uh, November of 1976 when I filled in for another reporter who covered Centralia Borough Council. Centralia Borough Council had a reputation for having extremely long meetings, like three hours. And, and at the end of the meeting, they would have something called the citizens portion of the meeting. And so after this long meeting, uh, this guy named Tony Gaughan stands up and starts talking about this fire that was burning under the ground near his house. And he was saying that if nothing was done, the fire was going to spread underneath the entire town. And I was all ears. I went back to the office uh, and the next day talked to my editor, Tom Brennan, and got his permission to do a more in-depth story. I wrote my first of, of 500, I counted them once, uh, stories about the mine fire over the next decade. Well, Centralia in particular is in the anthracite mine uh, field, which is in eastern Pennsylvania, very mountainous at the time that it was developed in the 18. 18- 
teens, but really the 1820s, very remote. I wanted to better understand what geographers call the energy landscape of this region. So I called Sean Adams. He's a historian at the University of Florida who studies the history of coal. Coal is discovered there actually in an interesting kind of uh, throwback to the Centralia fire that supposedly the myth is that hunters uh, left the campfire burning and then woke up to find out that the, uh, the land was actually on fire. There are two major kinds of coal, anthracite and bituminous. Anthracite is a lot less common. It's harder, higher in carbon, and it burns hotter and cleaner. You know, this, this was hard coal mining, which meant that what you did was you drilled a hole in it, you packed that hole with, with black powder. Eventually, they would use dynamite. But at the time, uh, in the 19th century, it was black powder. Light a fuse, you would say, fire in the hole. Uh, everybody would kind of cower in. The explosion would go off, and then you'd shovel the coal and, and bring it to the surface. And it wasn't just big companies getting in on the action. Everyday people were doing their own kind of bootleg coal mining on a smaller scale, known as wildcat mining. You know, you would have a coal seam that maybe a company would find unprofitable, but individuals would find, okay, over the weekend, um, I can dig some of this coal and sell it at market. So you have to think about this whole region is inundated with these mine shafts that uh, are often uh, penetrating each other. Yeah, the picture I keep getting when, when I've talked to people about this is, is almost like an ant farm. You know, that like there's all these all these tunnels that are intersecting and running underneath. Yeah. And it's very like I said, anthracite's very hard to ignite. The disadvantage of that, as Centralians found out, is that once it's lit really hot, really hard to put out. And probably the the, the worst thing that can happen and it did happen in Centralia is that you get a seam that kind of catches on fire and smolders and, and it will continue to smolder for a long, long time. If you go to Centralia, Pennsylvania, you won't see a raging fire. What you will see is this. Smoke, steam, and toxic fumes. There's an old film you can watch on YouTube, shot on 16mm, called Hell on Earth. It was produced in the early 80s to draw attention to the fire. What followed the fire and loss of income was a 20-year nightmare that dramatically changed the complexion of Centralia. It began with noxious gases seeping into the basements of homes in Centralia. You've heard of the canary in the coal mine, referring to an early warning of danger? Well, in Centralia, people began to keep actual canaries in their homes. A few years ago, you could buy a canary at Lou's Barbershop. A bird was a monitor. When it passed out, it meant dangerous gases had entered your home. The canaries have been replaced. The state installed monitoring systems with alarms that would sound when the concentration of gases reached 35 parts per million. Judy Politis remembers. The alarms went into the places where they were most highly suspect that there were fumes in the homes. And, you know, at that point, I'm saying to the kids, honey, don't go in that house to play or don't, you know, play outside, but don't, you know, because they would be in a confined space. But then, of course, the school and the church and the baseball fields and everything else where your kids spend a lot of time, where families spend time, it got to be more concerning and the steam coming out of the ground. The danger increases as the fire spreads. On Valentine's Day of 1980, Claire Dombowski experienced a nightmare and a miracle. The ground beneath her son caved in. He escaped death by clinging to a root in the hole. 
The kid's name was Todd Dombrowski. He went looking for the source of a plume and was sucked into a smoke-filled sinkhole that kept growing deeper and deeper. He was saved by his cousin, who was nearby, and who could barely make out Todd's red hunting cap amid the haze. Uh, let me begin by saying thank you, everyone, for coming here this afternoon. Around the turn of the decade, concerned citizens began organizing at town meetings in Centralia. Uh, I think your presence here expresses your concern about what has been and is happening in Centralia. And we really appreciate your turning out for this. When you see what our political environment is like today, try and put that down into something as small as Centralia, because there were the people who didn't want to go, there were the people who needed to go and didn't want to go, there were people who couldn't wait to get out. My husband was the president of council during a lot of that. I know we would get letters at the house of ways that we could kill this fire. And I mean, some of them were so bizarre. Now, these were not official things. This was mail that came to the president of council. Like that, we could collect bull urine and get it put out with that. (laughs) What? Listen, I'm telling you, the crazies come out. I am telling you, sometimes reading the mail was the best laugh of the day. They didn't go with the bull urine. And eventually, pretty much everyone ended up having to move. When somebody agreed to relocate, you know, when they moved out, the state would move in, demolish the home, level out the site, smooth it over, and eventually the entire town, or nearly the entire town, disappeared. Between 1985 and 1991, the state purchased more than 500 homes and businesses. It's kind of weird now. I mean, you know, you have all these, these power lines and sidewalks, but no homes. Uh, the areas that were once neatly tended lawns are now, you know, thickets of forest. In 1992, the state used eminent domain to force the remaining residents out. At this point, there were only around 40 or 50 people, and they took the state to court. They wanted to be able to stay on the property, knowing the risks. And they won. But over the years, as they've died off, the population has dwindled. There's about five people left. Uh, they're all mostly from the Hynoski family. Um, they are the diehards of the diehards, uh, and you know people who, for you know emotional, not always really rational reasons, decided they did not want to leave, and so they they just chose not to. I'm really interested in that component of this: that so many people didn't want to leave, even when they knew that it was burning underneath them, and that there was toxic gas spilling into their homes. There was a sense that, well. Centralia is important to me. I asked Judy Politis her feelings about this. What's it like to live so close now and, you know, to know that that community is no longer there? I mean, do you ever go back? Well, you have to go through it to get to some other places. And it's it still makes me sad, you know. And sometimes when we're going through, we try and figure out, because now it's getting to be a lot of years and things, you know, there's just a few homes left. But so-and-so lived here, and then it was there, and then it, then it was Panko's, and then it was Lazarski's, and, and I, the kids even still do it. Like, uh, it makes me want to cry now. And it's 36 years or so. Yeah. It, uh, it's, it's hurtful. Because... 
for mine, you know. And they were baptized there, received their sacraments there, went to school there. You know, some of the nicest parts of our life were spent there. Centralia is not the only mine fire burning in Pennsylvania. John Stefanko, Deputy Secretary of the Office of Active and Abandoned Mine Operations for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, said when I called him last year that there were actually more than 40 active abandoned mine fires in the state. We have what we call the Bureau of Abandoned Mine Reclamation, which reclaims all historical abandoned coal mines and addresses historic abandoned mine fires, subsidence and such. Anything that occurred prior to 1977, which is when Pennsylvania achieved primacy and we put regulations in place. There are a few main dangers with a mine fire. One of the big ones, and this was evident in Centralia, is the potential for toxic gases. So one of the things people did early on was to drill boreholes to vent the gas out of the fire cavity and into the atmosphere. And actually, if you go out there, you'll actually still see some of those vent boreholes still do exist out there. Um, There are other boreholes out there that we use to actually monitor the extent of the fire as well. Other common issues include flooding, if the mine shaft hits an aquifer or other groundwater source, discharging toxins into drinking water. And something called subsidence, which is when the ground collapses. Stefanko says this is the biggest issue with abandoned mines. In this particular case, obviously, with the coal cropping out the way it did, if it's burning, once that pillar collapses then what happens is you get the subsidence where it drops. So then you're going to see these deep open crevices up there, which obviously is a danger for anybody falling into them. That's what happened with Todd Dombrowski, the kid who fell into the sinkhole back in 1981. The true and only way to ever fully extinguish a fire is to totally excavate it, allow the burning material to cool, and then you you can replace it back into the trench that you dug. Um, We've done a number of what we call control projects over the years on mine fires where we would put in a cutoff trench that essentially all it does is prevents the fire from spreading beyond a certain point and essentially would let it burn itself out. That's basically what's happening in Centralia, partly because of its scale and partly because nobody really lives there now. Stefanko says they have a map of likely coal seams in that area, and they're pretty confident at this point that because of water and subsidence blockages, the fire is not going to spread under neighboring towns. The original estimate was that it was capable of burning about 3,700 acres out there, but other things have happened around it um, that would potentially reduce the burn area. There is an active surface coal mine in the area that they went in and they were taking coal out. So if they take that out, that obviously would reduce the potential. It could potentially move in that direction. They're doing that right now? Yes, there was. Um, I can't tell you if it's still active right now. The last I had heard, it was still an active permit out there. What's what's the extent of the fire at this point? I mean, is it still burning under the central part of Centralia? We, we don't really know that. Underground, there's so many different mine tunnels. If something has changed or if the wind direction under the mine tunnel has changed, it may blow hot air in one direction versus the other. It may move the fire in one direction. Or it may stop it in one direction. So at any given time, you're not really sure where it is. And we, we still have monitoring wells up there that we just, you know, we go up and check on it every once in a while because we essentially know it's not going to go anywhere, the fire itself. So we're just essentially letting it burn itself out. Over the years, Centralia has appeared here and there in popular culture, usually representing some sort of horrific unreality, 
For example, the horror game and film franchise Silent Hill based its fictional town on Centralia. In the early 2000s, a Pittsburgh-based theater troupe called Squonk Opera staged a remake of Dante's Inferno, set in Centralia. It was pretty trippy, sort of a modern rock opera with giant projection puppets and complicated light cues. There are still a few videos floating around the internet, like this one, of their song How Many Times. You might remember that in the Inferno, Dante gets lost in the woods and ends up forced beneath the earth, where he travels through the nine circles of hell. And hell, as Dante encountered it, was a place where your sins dictated your punishment. I'm not one for punitive theology, but it's hard not to see the connection between the decision to build our civilization on coal and fossil fuels and the contemporary landscape of Centralia. I thought a lot about Centralia in the early years of the Biden administration when the U.S. Senate was haggling over a climate bill and a coal baron stood in the way. The landscape of eastern Pennsylvania has been shaped irrevocably by the activities of the coal industry. It became a fundamentally different place, a more volatile and dangerous place, than in the not-so-distant past. If Centralia is a kind of hell on earth, it's one that some people and corporations had a hand in making. And I think that's part of the symbolism of the Centralia fire. Sean Adams, the coal historian. That industry went in, made a lot of money. A lot of that money left the region. Uh, and then what it left was this kind of environmental disaster and, 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 and a landscape that was susceptible to environmental disasters like the Centralia fire, like floods, like cave-ins, like collapses, like people falling down mine shafts, all those sorts of things. The community of Centralia, people like Judy Politis, were proverbial canaries in a literal coal mine. Stefanko told me that, to his knowledge, Centralia is the only town to ever be relocated because of a mine fire. But it's not the only place whose future is shaped by the coal industry. A 2019 report from the International Panel on Climate Change said that, quote, phasing out coal from the electricity sector is the single most important step in limiting the effects of climate change. But the Centralia mine fire reveals the extent to which the coal industry is interwoven into the economic, environmental, and cultural fabric of this country. We build meaning from shared experiences. And so, even when we have this thing that is literally undermining our homes and communities, that is making it too hot to live, there's still a part of us that mourns its absence. All of which complicates the project of extricating it from our lives and politics. What I can't forget is that how easy it would have been to put this fire out. I mean, the lesson of Centralia, which actually was learned, was that when a mine fire starts, you got to hit it hard. And you keep hitting it until it's gone. For any number of reasons, it fell between the cracks and just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it became impossible to deal with. This episode was written and produced by me, Ryan Schnur. Production assistance from Cassidy Duncan. Theme music by Michael Bazo. Additional music by Jazar. Archival recordings courtesy of Squonk Opera and via YouTube user at 19kings14. Special thanks to everyone who spoke with me for the project and to Anna Schnur, Ray Fouché, Shannon McMullen, Rachel Haverlock, Sheriff Ostrel, and Ed Simon. 
Fire is a production of Belt Magazine and Fortlander Media. Support for this project came from Belt readers and members, the Purdue University Department of American Studies, Jim Babcock, and the Albert LePage Center for History and the Public Interest. You can find links to sources and further reading, along with more episodes, at beltmag.com fire. Next time, we follow the trail of industrial fires west to 21st century California. See you then.